the title of my message, right, which is The Woman Caught in Adultery, Sins, Sinners, Stones and Self-Righteousness. Well, all nicely rhymes. <laughs> Let's get into the scripture now and that's on slides uh, two and three, you can follow me. Let's have a read, either off your screen or off your screen. John chapter 8 is where we are looking today, the first 11 verses. It's a, it's a word that the, the Lord put on my heart back in Australia, so I hope it will mean something to us today. Well, let's have a read, John chapter 8, verse 1. Let's start there. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery, in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Verse 6. They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground... But when they persisted in asking him, he, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Father God, we just commend this message to you today. Lord, it is your word that you have given to us. And I pray, Lord, the Holy Spirit will just communicate your word to our hearts and lives today. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Okay, slide four. A little bit of background and context, uh, first of all. So we're going to go back to chapter seven a little bit. Again, you might follow on in your own Bibles. Okay, so a little bit of background here, a little bit of context to this uh, event. Now, in chapter 7, verses 40 to 41, we read that people are arguing, who is the Christ? Some were saying he was definitely a prophet. Others were going further and saying, this is the Christ. The, the Messiah, the anointed one. And still others were saying that he couldn't be Christ because a prophet does not come from Galilee. A point repeated by the Pharisees in the second last verse of that chapter, uh, verse 52, which in fact is not accurate because we know that both Jonah and Nahum came from the regions of Galilee. We read about the finality of this argument in chapter 7, uh, around verse 43, in fact. Uh, it says, there arose a division, a division in the multitude because of him, because of Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees, you can be sure, wanted to put a stop to Jesus preaching in the temple and subsequently dispatched officers, they're called officers, to seize him. Now, officers were the temple guards who functioned as a, a kind of police force. 
um, mostly composed of Levites, who were in charge of maintaining order in the temple precinct. So when the uh, officers turned up without Jesus, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were livid, they were very mad, uh, demanding explanation in uh, verse 45, to which the officers replied, have you ever heard him speak? <laughs> Have you ever heard him speak? No one speaks like he does. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they retreat to their default position, accusing the, uh, the officers of being led astray and uh, secretly believing in Jesus too. There in 47 to 48. You know, say anything positive at all about Jesus, you're against us. <laughs> that seems to be the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees. The famed Nicodemus of John chapter 3 vintage, we're not going to go to that now, but you remember the, 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 uh, the teaching there on being born again. So Nicodemus steps in with advice to give more, he says, we should give more reflection to Jesus. We need to hear out what he has to say. After which you can imagine uh, Nicodemus is resolutely rebuked and also accused of being a fellow Galilean. There in verses 50 to 52. Yeah, that's the default position yet again. So chapter 7 ends with everybody calling it a day and going home, verse 53. All except Jesus, hence the first word, but, depending on your translation there, the first word, but, in 8 verse 1. Jesus who went uh, to the Mount of Olives opposite Jerusalem, probably resting and most likely spending much of the night in prayer, no doubt discerning what's likely to transpire the following day. It's going to be even more grueling. <laughs> you see, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths is another name, B-O-O-T-H-S, which celebrated God's provision and protection during Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And uh, therefore, hordes of people, lots and lots of uh, people are visiting Jerusalem and the temple this time of year. And the religious officials, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't want Jesus upsetting things. Uh, they don't want him getting too popular or too much focus. Now we go to our chapter 8 text. Slide number 5. Great. So here we are. This is the focus of our message today in chapter 8. Early in the morning, sure enough, Jesus is back in the temple. And the people are turning out in droves. Yet again, just as early as he, he's up early, they are also up early to hear him teaching. Jesus sat down, we are told, in, uh, there in 8.2, uh, uh, as one often did, <coughs> if, if having spiritual authority, and also for the purposes of, well, you'd be comfortable. You know, you sit down and you're more comfortable to hear Jesus' teaching, which can go on for quite some time. Now, this is apparently the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the people, the majority, probably being country people from outside, well, you can imagine they are extra desirous to hear one last sermon from the mouth of Christ. 
So it's an important day. It's a big day. People are really coming out for this day. So Jesus is teaching. He's surrounded by a throng of people. They're just everywhere for quite some time. For how long, we don't exactly know. But then, all of a sudden, at some stage during Jesus' teaching, there's a, there's a, a big ruckus. There's a big commotion. And, and the people, they stand back. They stand back. And uh, as the scribes and the Pharisees, they push and they pull Exhibit A into the center of the courtyard. Now, given all the, the division we just saw back there in Chapter 7, the scribes and the Pharisees, they are itching, itching to pick a quarrel with Jesus. After all, if this is the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they want to put a sour taste and a negative opinion of Jesus into the hearts and minds of the many people so enamored, so amazed with Jesus. Actually, it's in Mark's gospel in particular, he really emphasizes the, uh, uh, how people were just amazed. It's a word repeated and repeated and repeated in that gospel, uh, amazed with Jesus. A woman is unceremoniously dragged into center stage. So everybody is standing back and, and the Pharisees drag this woman right into the center of the, the courtyard. What is this? What's going on here? Why this intrusion in, into Jesus' teaching and disturbing what the people came to hear? Well, we are immediately told in verse 3 of chapter 8, it's a woman caught in adultery. The scribes and the Pharisees, uh, they're vocal and loud for all to hear. They could be pretty vocal people, <laughs> very loud people. They want people to hear. Verse 4, teacher or master, some of your translations say, this woman has been caught in adultery. And just in case, just in case there should be any question about is this true, uh, who says so, what evidence is there, could someone be mistaken about her, uh, and the like, the Pharisees make it as plain as day that she was caught, verse 4, in the very act. Of course, sin can be much like that. It's very clear. It's very direct. What's done in darkness is brought to light, shouted from the housetops, and others might also be caught up in it. So here she is. In the midst of this large assembly, all standing back just watching this this event take place. And they bring her, the scribes and the Pharisees, they bring her to Christ to render a judgment on the matter. It's a carefully calculated malicious trap with a personal agenda to discredit Christ and bring about his demise. The scribes and the Pharisees, they certainly know the Jewish law, or they do. They know the word of God. They, in fact, they could quote a lot of it verbatim. You know, they would learn it in their training, in their schools. They could just um, say it off by heart. And before Jesus says anything uh, uh, at all, and making sure that uh, um, they get this point to him before he should speak, they say in a calculating way, verse 5, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. And that's to highlight 
to Jesus and all the crowd that this is scripture. That must always be obeyed. This is the scripture, the scripture, the scripture. <laughs> right? And there's no way to negate it. Notice, employing flattery, they call Jesus teacher or master, who they were calling a deceiver only yesterday, chapter 7. So they're certainly up to some tricks. A brief aside to the woman for a moment. Who knows, maybe she would have continued her adulterous relationship in the future if she had not been discovered, but is now suffering sin's shame in full public view. You know, sometimes it is a mercy for sin to be brought to light and suffer its shame than for it to continue. Better to be shamed than eternally damned. Better to receive conviction than condemnation. Well, back to our scene in chapter 8. This is a, I think you can see, a tough situation, right? A tough situation. There is incontestable truth. She was caught in the very act of adultery, leaving no room for a not guilty verdict. How will Jesus handle this serious matter of sin? How will he handle the sinner? And this is where we can learn much about sin and sinners in a practical way from this passage in John's Gospel that we're looking at today. You know, the Mosaic law, the word of God, did command, it did command that such a person be stoned. If you look at Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22, for example, and other places, it certainly makes that very clear. So then, inevitably, surely, as we can expect, then came the perfectly framed question. Put to Jesus by the scribes and the Pharisees, there in verse 5. What then do you say? It sure looks like Jesus is cornered. He who preaches repentance and forgiveness. He who claims it is the sick who need the doctor who received publicans and sinners. You can find all this in a, all, throughout all the Gospels. Who had mercy on the, the tax collector who felt too ashamed to look up to heaven. This is Jesus who went to the house of Zacchaeus, the chief among the publicans, and many other stories as well. As I predicted in Isaiah 61, verse 2. Jesus even proclaimed once in a Nazareth synagogue the year of the Lord's favor. They knew, the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew the tone of mercy in Jesus' messages. And they were ready to exploit it. As verse 6 says, they were testing Jesus in order to accuse him. So what will he do? What will Jesus say? Will he negate the word of God presented by the scribes and Pharisees and pronounce her innocent? And thereby empower the Pharisees' accusation that, that Jesus came to destroy the law and the prophets, like we read in Matthew 5.17, or that he indeed is a gluttonous man and friend of tax collectors and sinners. Another accusation in Matthew chapter 11. So will he pronounce her innocent? Or, or 
will he pronounce her guilty and thereby precipitate a horrific stoning to take place today in front of a spectator audience witnessing due judgment on a woman paying for her sins with her life. It's like heaven and earth are standing still at this moment. The choice seems stark. The demise of Jesus inevitable, the death of a sinner, a foregone conclusion. Next slide, number six. And then Jesus stoops down to the ground and he begins to write in the dirt. He's in no hurry. Here he is writing. Incidentally, this is the only time in the Gospels that we read of Jesus writing anything. Of course, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're, they're impatient. You can imagine these guys. They are impatient, thinking they already have this moment in the bag. <laughs> An ironclad victory in the making. It seems to be an unbeatable case. And probably a, a party, a celebration waiting for them at the end of uh, this episode. It's a day, or a day when their self-righteousness will elevate to even further heights. So, <laughs> they're impatient. That's why they repeat and re-emphasize the words there in verse 7. Come on, Jesus. What do you say? Although we don't exactly know what Jesus wrote, if I were a Pharisee, I think I would be a little bit worried. What do you think? You know your, your Bibles? You know, what immediately comes to mind when you think of a hand that is writing something? I'm sure you're already thinking of the mysterious man's hand there in Daniel chapter 5, writing on the wall. Uh, next slide, slide 7. Uh, this, by the way, is a, um, a famous painting by Rembrandt. Um, and uh, in 1635, apparently worth millions of dollars, <laughs> Uh, his depiction of King Belshazzar writing, uh, seeing this hand write on the wall. In that episode, King Belshazzar of Babylon, he held a great feast for a large audience, irreverently drinking wine from the vessels taken from the Jewish temple. Hence, the background has a lot in common with what is happening here in John chapter 8. There's a large audience in both cases. A feast is on. There are temple emblems present. And most importantly, a righteous hand that is writing. At least, at least Belshazzar, in Daniel 5.9 we read, he was greatly alarmed. <laughs> I think I would be too greatly alarmed and, uh, and he sought to find someone who could decipher those words many many tekel a pass in, um, in 525 which Daniel subsequently interpreted amongst other things that well your days are numbered and you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting or deficient and right here in John's gospel the scribes and the Pharisees they are being weighed in the balance. They are being found wanting or deficient. Though they are consumed with rendering judgment on the woman and on Jesus, 
If he fails to condemn her, they can't even see and don't even suspect that judgment is being rendered upon them. Sometimes it is like that when it comes to sinners and sin issues. We see the speck of dust in other people's eyes and not the great big plank in our own eyes. Matthew 7 talks about that. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the woman at center stage in the courtyard must be in fear and trepidation of the barrage of stones likely to fly her way. She not only has the law of Moses supposedly against her, but being caught up in the supposed middle of a religious argument between Jesus and these scribes Pharisees does not augur very well for the victim. Slide eight. Then Jesus finally speaks up. He stands up and he says, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. It's all silence. And there's more silence. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're quick and impatient to apply God's word, the law of Moses, to the woman caught in adultery. But are they as quick and impatient to apply God's word, the law of Moses, to themselves? Are they without sin? More silence. Jesus stoops down to the ground and he begins to write again. One by one, starting with the older people, we read in verse 9, they began to leave. No one is throwing any stones. The older people left first because, most likely, having lived longer than others, they knew better than anyone that sin has marred the lives of every human being. And that without the mercy, forgiveness, or atonement of God, they ought also to be called to account. You know, the older you get, some of you are still very young here. <laughs> but the older you get, the more you realize the mercy you have been given. Believe me, some of you when you get older, you will realize this even more. And keep in mind that Jesus has already taught on the widespread practice of this sin, that is adultery, when he also said, uh, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5 talks about that. So applying Jesus' holistic teaching, by sentencing the woman to death, by doing that, they would, by their association with sin, likewise be sentencing themselves to death. We're all sinners. <laughs> and we all need to be forgiven. True, everyone deserves to die for their own sins. But Christ is going to pay that price for us on our behalf if we are genuinely repentant. Now, in fact, in all of this, the only righteous judge in this entire audience without any sin at all and who is actually qualified to pass judgment is Jesus himself. And he did not cast any stone. Let's be clear. Jesus is not excusing the sin of the woman. The episode becomes, it turns out, the occasion for one of Jesus' greatest teaching on the final day of the feast. That is, 
Sin need not be the decider of our fate. Sin need not be the final arbiter of penalty. Sin need not be the insurmountable foe. And sin need not be the price that can never be paid. There is, there is a way out. An opportunity to be free. A way to cover those sins and move on with life. And you know, this is very much the message of Jesus. And why this is still up to date. You know, we like updates. We like being modern and contemporary. This is up to date <laughs> teaching for us today. Um, and that is, with genuine repentance, sinners can be forgiven. Stones can be discarded and self-righteousness can be dismembered. Hence again the title of our message today. Slide nine. Sometimes such mercy can be lacking in our own lives. Perhaps ever quick to pass judgment continually recounting sins committed against others, reminding people of what they have done or haven't done, and making people pay for their sins and mistakes the rest of their life. If, hear me here, if we are inclined to do this, quick to cut and paste some select scripture out of the Bible to condemn somebody, like what I call specialist spiritual surgeons, <laughs> assuming we can cut and dissect portions of the Bible when it suits us. Remember what Jesus said. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 5 talks about that. Or reflect on what Paul says. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness in Galatians chapter 6. You see, the Pharisees were out to save their self-righteous reputation. But Jesus was out to save a soul. A big difference, isn't there? This story, incidentally, has some elements in common with uh, another story elaborated by the gospel writer Luke. Uh, very briefly, in that case, we have the Pharisees yet again uh, commenting on Exhibit A yet again, that is, a sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, who washed Jesus' feet with her hair. You know the story, I'm sure. We read that she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume in Luke 7:38. And the Pharisees' response in that episode was, if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't know what... What sort of person this woman is who is touching him? And that, in 7.39 Luke, and that she is a, a sinner. When it came to extending mercy to sinners, it seems the self-righteous Pharisees had none of it. Utterly bereft of human compassion or a burden for lost souls. Now back to John chapter 8. At the end of this passage, Jesus stands up a second time in verse 10. There's nobody left. <laughs> nobody left in the temple courtyard except two people, Jesus and the sinner. And this is precisely where we all finish up. Be sure, each of us inevitably face Jesus. It's him and me. 
How have we prepared our lives? Do we repent of our sins before God, seek the forgiveness of God, and walk in a new direction? Or do we hold on to our self-righteousness? Jesus speaks to the sinner a final time. The woman caught in adultery, and uh, he says, there in, uh, um, at the end of the section, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she says, and this is her first and final words that we read, No one, Lord. No one, Lord. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. And we might add, given what Jesus already said to the lame man back at the pool of Bethsaida in John chapter 5, who, who he also heard, do not sin anymore. And Jesus added, that nothing worse happens to you. We don't go back to old sins, something worse can happen to us. So from this uh, passage today, I, I want to uh, um, uh, finalize with these three points. This is what I have been leading up to, um, is these three things I think we can learn from John chapter 8 today. If you can remember these three things, then at least I would have accomplished my objective today. So uh, slide number 10 Number one is this. This is what we can learn. First point here is we must understand and comprehend the full weight of sin. Herein lies the balance, the antidote, you might say, to a hyper-grace doctrine popularized in some Christian churches. Some contend to overemphasize Jesus' mercy, but ignore the urgency and necessity to deal with personal sin. And we have other stories in the Bible clarifying this balance between mercy and genuine repentance, change, such as the parable of the unmerciful servant. Matthew 18 to, uh, gives us that story. It's a story about a man asking for, for, for forgiveness and then being utterly unchanged. <clears throat> he, he, <clears throat> being utterly unchanged when he got it, he still went out and did the same sinful things as before, in this case, getting his pound of flesh out of others. You see, <clears throat> great forgiveness requires great change. Great forgiveness requires brave steps. Great forgiveness may even require us to eat some humble pie. Never allow God's mercy to become an excuse for sin or to justify abuse of others, which is tantamount to making a fool of God. You know, don't play around with the things of God. Real forgiveness commences with a recognition of the weight of sin. The woman caught in adultery is well aware, you can be sure, well aware of the weight of her sin, bearing the shame and the onslaught of, these are genuine accusations. She would have accurately reasoned that this was her final day on planet earth it's agonizing minutes waiting for the stones to fly as the condemning voices of the Pharisees reach higher and higher pitch demanding blood in her apparent last minutes of life you can be sure this woman, she fully understands and comprehends the gravity and the full weight of sin. We must also understand the gravity and the full weight of sin if we are to expect forgiveness. 
We cannot ignore it, we, uh, we cannot indulge in it, uh, or dismiss it, or dilute it. Unless we commence with this step one, there's unlikely to be any progress. We will not be able to deal with our sin. We will repeat it time and time again. And worst of all, we will finish up paying the due price of sin because we never really repented, turned and changed. Number two, slide 11. Second of uh, my third of my three points. We must extend repentance and forgiveness to others. The woman caught in adultery, we can certainly conclude, is repentant given the context and the Lord's response. Now some of us in the church, I feel, are quick to recognize the weight of sin, particularly if it's somebody else's, but not so good at extending mercy to others. Such people in the mind, uh, in like minds of the scribes and the Pharisees, callously look at others through the lens of self-righteousness. We want to make them pay to fulfill my conditions if ever I am to forgive them and to continually count the sin against them so that they will live unhappily ever after. We lack the amazing grace that John Newton wrote about, who, broken and humbled, understood sin's unbearable weight. Fully, he fully understood that no human being can boast about his or her self-righteousness. When we are this morally bankrupt, I call it, when we're this morally bankrupt, we will have no personal resources available in which to forgive others. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were morally bankrupt, quick to self-righteously accuse others with no, no heart of mercy, no burden for fallen souls, no compassion for sinners. Sinners with a spiritual death sentence hanging over their heads. And point number three, slide 12. We must help people move on with their lives. You know, we read Jesus said in 8.11, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. I've noticed over the years, some of, them, some of my friends even, even some of my students like to come down hard on certain people, ever quick to consign a guilty verdict and apply some genuine scripture for some sin or offense committed, but dismiss the balancing elements of mercy forgiveness and helping people move on with their lives. They are willing to throw scriptures like stones, chapter and verse in hand, condemning the guilty, even if the offenders are genuinely repentant, willing to make restitution and change their ways. Such a hard-hearted response it tends to bind people up, making them think they have to pay for their sin or failure for the rest of their lives. The, whether it's cultural, social, religious stones, they just keep coming and never stop flying. Self-righteous people will make sure of that. No, no, we must, we must uh, be prepared to help such people. Help them work through some of the family and social consequences they may have to face because of their sin. Give them a second chance if need be and release them 
into their futures. That's the wonderful thing about this story. This woman, very repentant, forgiven by the Lord, she's given a chance in life to move on with life. As I teach ethics in various places to many students, uh, I always like to emphasize this because particularly in a subject like ethics, we're often very willing to quote some chapter and verse that are very genuine. But the balancing side of extending some mercy, heart toward these people, to help them move on with their lives, that's uh, a bit of a harder task for some people. I've even noticed, for example, some people who are divorced. You know, occasionally in life, things just happen we never intended or wanted or prepared for and then hold that kind of sin against them for the rest of their lives. Make them pay, you know, you did this wrong and that wrong and, you know, we need to find a way to help such people. To let them work through issues, to work through their sin and then to free them to move on with their lives and not, don't just hold their sin and guilt against them for the rest of their lives. That's akin to always throwing stones. If Jesus could release the woman caught in adultery into her future to help free her to move on with her life, I think we can do the same. And finally, my final words, slide 13. As we close, a word of wisdom for those forgiven and set free. Having understood the huge weight of sin, having repented and been forgiven, having received the amazing grace and mercy of the Lord and even from the Christian fellowship, move forward and never, ever be so foolish as to go back to your old sins. Or, in the words of John 5, 14, something worse may happen to you. Can we just stand in the presence of the Lord as we uh, pray? Maybe there's a bit of quiet music in the background. And I'm just going to give you a minute or so uh, in your own personal prayer for you to you might want to talk to the Lord. Maybe there's something in your life or in your heart that you would say, Holy Spirit, help me here. Help me here. Let's just do that individually and personally for a few moments. You, you commune with the Lord.
Let us never be so.